first he's coming to get his bride. He's going to take us where he is. He's going to take us to heaven because we're not going to be here during the time of the tribulation. This is his promise to the bride, and he has been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, and I can't wait to see it. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in chapter 19 of our study of the Revelation. Much of what we've been studying for the past several months has been frightening because the preceding chapters deal with impending judgment that will occur during a time known as the Tribulation. But we've rounded a corner, and following a series of catastrophic events that will occur during this time period, we see a light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is the Lord Jesus Christ preparing to make a return to the earth. Prior to His return and eventual millennial reign, there will be a great celebration featuring the Lord and all of heaven. The Bible refers to this as the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we read about it in verses 7 through 10. So let's join Dr. Brogy as he tells us more about this great feast. This morning, I want you to see three truths about this marriage supper of the Lamb that God will bring his bride, the church, back to earth to celebrate. First, this bride is a beautiful bride. This bride will be beautiful. The bride that Christ will bring to the marriage supper of the Lamb will be an absolutely beautiful bride. This is a special event. Now, think about a wedding. You can probably, most of you remember your own wedding, and you probably remember a lot of details that will never be forgotten. I mean, think about all the planning and all the praying and all the purchasing that went into it, and I might add stress in a lot of situations, but it's a magnificent day. It's a day you will never forget. Well, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Why? Because it's a, it's a causal in the original meaning for, because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. So another reason to rejoice, to give God praise and glory is because the marriage supper of the lamb has come. And that's one of the reasons they are filled with praise and giving glory to the Lord who's on his throne and about to bring that throne here to the earth as we will study in our next exposition of this chapter. Now, understand the closeness that a man and a woman know in a healthy marriage is incomparable to anything else on this earth. And that's one of the reasons why God likens his people to his bride. He calls Israel his bride in the Old Testament. He calls the church here in the New Testament his bride. And it's no surprise because at this point in human history, now in unfallen, glorified bodies here on the earth, what God had promised is going to happen. And what you see in this chapter to most Jewish people would be profoundly important because the way they do a wedding and the way we do a wedding is a little bit different. So we need to go back into the first century culture and understand how a wedding was unfolded in order to appreciate all that God is saying for us. Right now, the church is betrothed. We are, so to speak, engaged to Christ, though slightly different. There's coming a day when we'll be presented to Christ, and then will come the wedding feast. There's actually four events. There's the betrothal, there's the presentation, there's the ceremony, and there's the wedding feast. 
as little kids, we used to kind of see two kids that liked each other, and we'd say, you know, Johnny and Katie sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes, you know, Fred and the baby carriage, or whatever it is. Well, uh, that's not a bad progression of events, except for kissing in the tree part. But understand, that's not the way it happened in the average Jewish wedding. In fact, that's not the way it happens today in the average Orthodox Jewish wedding. It's not first comes love and then comes marriage. It's first comes marriage and then comes love. Some of you have been with me to Israel, and it's interesting in all the hotels that we've stayed in in Jerusalem, they're meeting places for the Orthodox. And I like to sit back and kind of watch because I, I see this young man who's waiting and he's being introduced to a woman most of the time he's never met before in his life. And it's their first meeting. And the parents, sometimes under the supervision of a rabbi, I have a rabbi friend there who told me he's been involved in the matching of 137 weddings. That was at last count, he told me. And so they would meet each other for the first time. And they would get betrothed. And the betrothal, of course, typically lasted for a year. Some of you have read Genesis 24, where Isaac and Rebekah get married. But remember, when he meets Rebekah, he had never seen her before. Then Isaac took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. First came the marriage, and then came the love. Why? Because the parents decided whom they would marry. And by the way, in some cultures of the world, one of my pastor friends in India said, my daughter's getting married. I said, I didn't know she was dating anyone. She said, she wasn't. We arranged the marriage. Oh, wonderful. That's great. He said, it works. Trust me. Okay. Well, during the betrothal period, it's a little bit different from an engagement. Engagements are made to be broken. When you're betrothed, you're actually called husband and wife. That's why in Matthew 1.19, though Joseph had had no relationship with Mary... He's called the husband of Mary, and when he finds out she's pregnant, he assumes that she has been unfaithful, and so he's going to put her away. You could translate it, he's going to divorce her. So it's a legally binding relationship. And of course, two young people, when they are betrothed to each other, it was an opportunity to demonstrate for the bride-to-be her purity over that course of a year because that's how long typically a betrothal took place. And it was a time for the groom-to-be also to describe, to define his faithfulness as he would go and prepare a place for his bride. And so we read in Matthew 1.18, Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, and she was found to be with child. And now everything seemingly is shattered until the angel of God tells Joseph what happened is not immorality but a supernatural miracle birth. And Joseph, in great faith, embraces the word from heaven that God gives. Now, a wedding and the preparation that goes with it is one of the best analogies of how we can understand the return of Jesus. Biblically, right now, we are betrothed, so to speak. We are anticipating the return of the groom from heaven. But that's only part of the story. I'll think your way through this for a moment. If you speak to an engaged woman, typically it's not long before she will begin to talk about her wedding that's coming and all the planning. And if she really loves the guy, she'll just talk nonstop about him or vice versa. 
That's what you do. And let me just say parenthetically, you are engaged, so to speak. You are betrothed to Christ. And if you really love him, the mouth speaks what's in the heart. You're anticipating his return. And if you're not anticipating the great wedding day, maybe because you haven't really been taught biblical prophecy, or maybe you've heard some pastor teach prophecy in an unbalanced, inaccurate way, but we as God's people are to be looking forward to an event. Paul said, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. At a wedding, it's customary to focus on the bride. But in this case, the bridegroom. Let us, look at verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. Now, the bride is the body of Christ. It's the church, born-again believers. If you've taken my church, excuse my, my church, my course on the church called ecclesiology, ecclesia is the word that is often rendered church in the New Testament, most of the time in reference to a local church, sometimes to the universal body of Christ. But the church didn't exist in the Old Testament. The Bible teaches it began on the day of Pentecost. And right now, God is building His church. He is gathering people into this universal bride. It's not made of a particular local church or stripe. It's anyone and everyone who's been born again and bought with the blood of Christ. And so, we've been talking about this great multitude in heaven who are praising God because they're getting ready to go to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Remember, the people we're talking about is you and I. We're here in heaven. We are reading about the future for the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Now, one aspect of the betrothal is if a man wanted to marry a particular girl, he would go and he would agree with, with a dad for a purchase price. What was the function behind that? It was to demonstrate that he was financially capable, that he could leave and cleave. When a young man comes to me and he wants me to perform a, a wedding for his prospective bride, you know, we minimum six months, minimum six one-hour appointments, minimum of about 20 hours of homework. But one of the things they have to demonstrate to me, if I'm going to do it, I said, look, if you want to get married, you can just go down to the city hall and one guy said to me, I said, how'd you get married? He said, we went down to the city hall and the lady behind the desk was on the phone and we handed her the form and she signed it and then stamped it notary and handed it to him. She, congratulations. I said, you can do that. But I'm not in the marrying business. I'm in the business of building Christian homes. And one of the things a young man has to be able to do is that he all by himself without any help from his wife's salary, if she is, of course, without children, is provide for. So a man would demonstrate his ability through the purchase price. And of course, here in verse 7, Jesus is referred to as the lamb. When we come down to verse 16, when he comes back to the earth, he's called the king of kings and lord of lords. But the emphasis here is on the purpose, purchase price. Christ loved the church, Paul wrote, and gave himself up for her. We've been bought with a price, not with things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb. But after the Jewish betrothal period came, then the groom would come and he would collect his bride. 
And he would take the bride back to that home that he had been preparing there on his father's land. And of course, let me just say this morning, again, if you are not longing for the return of Christ, it means one of two things. Either you've never met him, you're just a cardboard, phony Christian, Christianized, but not born again. Or two, you've met him, but your heart is a million miles away. You're living in sin, you're living in disobedience, and that's why you never even think about the Savior returning from heaven. And so Christ is preparing a place for us. This imagery is not accidental. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. The old English says many mansions. That was superb in the 17th century because the word mansion from the Latin vulgate meant a room. Today, the word mansion, we, we think of this large palatial home. No, in my Father's house, there's many rooms, many apartments, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. First, he's coming to get his bride. He's going to take us where he is. He's going to take us to heaven because we're not going to be here during the time of the tribulation. This is his promise to the bride, and he has been preparing a place for us for 2,000 years, and I can't wait to see it. Now, it might seem odd to you, that during these seven years while we're in heaven, we're going to have a time of evaluation. But it's taught in the Scriptures. Here's a chart to help you to visualize it. Right now, we're in the church age. God is gathering a bride for His Son. In one of these days, it could happen today. The last person who's going to become a member of the body of Christ will call upon Jesus in salvation, and the Father will say, go get your bride. The church will be caught up. And this seven-year period that will come, conclude with the second coming, while the tribulation is taking place on earth, the Bema seat of Christ is taking place in heaven. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one will be recompensed for his deeds done in the body. There's coming a day when God is going to evaluate your service, and in the New Testament, it's largely in the local church. Now, some of you are out there, and you're leading a Bible study for this organization or that organization. That's all well and good. But if you're not serving in God's local church, you're not putting the emphasis where God puts it. And one of the things he's going to evaluate is your service in the local assembly. And of course, this evaluation is not to see if you get into heaven, but based on 2 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 3 and Romans 14 and verse 12, it's how you will be rewarded in heaven throughout all of eternity. I want you to see the beauty of his bride here in verse 8. Notice what he says. It was given to her to clothe herself in the fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Three descriptive words that describe the bridal robe that each of us will wear. First of all, he says it's fine linen. In the first century, that would have popped off the page. That was a very expensive and beautiful piece of cloth. Second, the Bible says that this robe is bright. It's a Greek word that can also be translated shining. There's not a single English word that will capture it. It's a bright robe. It's a shining robe. And third, his bride or his wife is put out there in the margin, literally in the Greek, is also dressed in a clean garment. 
This word clean is often translated pure in the New Testament. So this beautiful garment that each of God's people will wear in heaven is further defined, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Now, at first, that may seem a little confusing. As you think, well, why do I have a robe based on my righteous acts? Well, as we've been studying in the Revelation, there are two expressions of the robe that God gives His people when they get to heaven. On the one hand, there's a righteousness that you can never earn or achieve. It's imputed to your account. To go to heaven, you need the righteousness of God. So God made Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin there on the cross, to become sin on our behalf, so that in order that we might become, because we weren't before, the righteousness of God, that's what you need that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So Paul tells us, as he writes to the Philippians, that he is planning to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, because that fell short. Paul will say in Galatians 3, unless you obey every single aspect of the law, you're cursed. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So, yet here in verse 8, he speaks of the righteous acts of the saints. Understand, on the one hand, God gives you a robe that comes from imputed righteousness. On the other hand, God gives you a robe that is based on how you lived out that imputed righteousness. And the book of Ephesians brings them both together. Listen to this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. Salvation is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I will not get to heaven and brag and tell you why I'm there because of anything I've done, because I didn't do anything to earn it. It's a gift. Gifts are not earned, they're received. For we, the next verse, are his workmanship, poema. We get our English word poetry. We're God's poetry, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're not saved by works, We're saved unto or for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. Think about this. When God saved you, he he has a wonderful plan for your life. Do you know that there are certain goals, certain works, a certain ministry that God has for you today? I don't want to get to heaven and for God to say, well, this is what I wanted you to be and to do, but you only achieved this much. No, I want to walk in the works that God prepared prepared beforehand that I might achieve his purposes for us. Now, God's not putting you under pressure. Understand how this all works out. Paul says God imputes a righteousness to you. It's given as a gift. And when you are justified, you are regenerated. You are made alive in the Holy Spirit. In a moment's time, you become a new creature. Peter says you become a partaker of the divine nature. And that's why the Apostle Paul can tell the Philippians, work out your salvation. Don't work for it because you can't earn it. But once you've received it, work it out. Work out your salvation because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So you're justified. You are imputed with righteousness. You are regenerated by the Spirit, made a partaker of the divine nature, And then he is now shaping you. How does he shape you and mold you so that you can achieve the plan that he has through you, for you? By the word of God. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 26, that we're being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. 
God renews our mind. He, it's his beauty cream, so to speak, the word of God. That's why I'm supposed to preach the Bible on Sunday morning. That's why I don't preach for 12 minutes. Sermonettes are for Christianettes. I open the word of God. I explain it because God's word is the tool that will shape your life that you and I might together become what God's called us to as we rely upon the Holy Spirit to pull it off. And then in this beauty treatment, we meet God when he takes us up into heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. Right now, we may have some spots and blemishes, but he's going to give us a new robe, and that robe will describe and picture the righteous acts of the saints. I remember about a year ago, my granddaughter said, Granddad, will you, will you watch Cinderella with us? I said, okay, I'll watch Cinderella with you. And we watched her there, you know, with ash all over her face and just despised and rejected by her stepmother and her sisters. Now, that's kind of the way we are. We're like our Lord, despised and rejected of men. But a day is coming when everything is going to be changed. God is going to make ready his bride and he is going to give you a robe for your service. The bride will be beautiful. Secondly, the guests will be glad. Not only will the bride be beautiful, the guests will be glad. Now remember, right now, we're just betrothed. The Lord Jesus is going to come take us into heaven, and then after the tribulation is over, he'll take us back to earth for the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I want to tell you that what is in front of us is the best you will ever have imagined in all of human experience. And I know that not just on the basis of the Word of God, but I know that on the basis of my own human experience. Next to the Lord Jesus, there's no one else I love in this world more than my wife, Audrey. She is my bride, and I love her with all my heart. But the love I have for her pales compared to the love that Christ has for his bride, the church. And that's why I say the best is yet to come. Look at verse 9. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Now, when you are a bride at your wedding, a wonderful blessing is to be there for you, but it's also a wonderful blessing if you're a guest and you're invited and you get to share in the magnificence of the moment. Now, certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding, but guests are invited to the bride's wedding. And that's how it worked in a Jewish wedding. And typically it was the groom who invited the guests. Right blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You know, we think of the Beatitudes typically in the Sermon on the Mount, but there are actually seven Beatitudes here in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth of the seven. The word makarios, same word as in the Sermon on the Mount. Fulfilled, happy, totally satisfied are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, again, the first century wedding typically took place in three stages. First, there was the legal consummation when you were betrothed through that deal that you made with the dad and you drank from a cup and you sealed the deal. Jesus there in the upper room, he drank from a cup, and he gave it to the disciples. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back. And then the bridegroom comes back, and he claims the bride for himself. And he takes the bride to heaven, to his father's house. 
But then there's the marriage supper. And the marriage supper in a first century Jewish wedding was not like our weddings today that last three or four hours. It would typically last a week. And you pick that up as you read John 2 and the first miracle that Jesus performed. And so in fulfilling the biblical symbol, Christ is completing phase one of the church as people are saved and added to the church day by day. In phase two, he'll come and he'll rapture the church. He'll take us to heaven where we will be evaluated and adorned. And, and then in phase three, oh, he comes back. He brings us back to the earth and we enjoy the marriage supper. Now the marriage supper it doesn't take place in heaven. It takes place on the earth. And sometimes you see these pictures of the marriage supper, and it looks kind of almost foggy and kind of dreamy. It's actually going to take place on the earth, right? Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, in purely human terms, I suppose you cannot have a wedding without a wedding reception, typically, or without a wedding feast. And in order to prepare for the marriage supper, you need to know who's invited. When you have a wedding, we had one here yesterday, you need to know how many was coming. So you knew how much food to prepare. Well, there's a special blessing, Jesus said, on those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the bride, we're going to have some guests there. And Jesus alludes to this in Matthew 8 and Luke 13. And the bride, the church, the body of Christ that was birthed on Pentecost, they will be the focus, but there'll be some guests that will be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said this in that place, describing the lost religious leaders of his day, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Passages like this have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob as guests of the groom. There'll be people like those described in Hebrews 11, the great men and women of faith. There will be men like John the Baptist. John the Baptist described himself, if you remember, as a friend of the bridegroom. But John, of course, was not a part of the church. He lived on the other side of Calvary. He lived ever before the day of Pentecost came, which is why Jesus can say, truly, truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He is a great man. I love this guy. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How so? Because John never experienced the blessing of the new covenant that began on the day of Pentecost. But John will be there at this wedding feast, as will be those tribulation saints who find the Lord God. And then he concludes the verse by saying, these are true words of God. That's a necessary note of assurance. God wants to give us a note of assurance because in a day, especially in the first century day, where he's writing to these seven churches where it was very dark, and the church will end like it began, the Scripture affirms. And in these days, when Christians are increasingly persecuted and mocked, God wants us to know these words are true. The days in which we are living are dark days, but for the Christian, these are days of great hope, because we know the return of Christ is definitely drawing near. To listen again to today's message, The Marriage Supper of the Lamb, 
Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. For more information, visit us online at searchthescriptures.org or call 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, the conclusion of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.